Let's, uh, let's look to the screen as our custom is and pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Lord, we pray together again in our prayer covenant that we have been walking in for these 30 days. We ask you to give us understanding. Help us to have ears that are quick to hear and eyes that are perceptive to see, hearts that are ready to understand what God is saying to the church. Um, you told us that over and over in the Gospels and, and in the chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. Let the one who has ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. We want to hear what you are saying to us, Lord. Give us understanding so that we will be like the men of Issachar who understood the day in which they lived and had an understanding of what the people of God ought to do. We pray for unction. And we said that that was an, an old-fashioned word. We don't hear it much anymore, but it's a word for anointing. It's a word for empowering. Give us not only understanding, but give us anointing to do what you've asked us to do. May that unction that is in the King James Version that John used that word, may that unction show forth in all of us. And Father, we pray for unity. Lord, this is a time when by its very nature, just the world in which we're living, it's, it's, it's difficult to attain unity. Even, even political parties are, are finding infighting going on. And God forbid that churches should have infighting, but may we be united. Um, we don't have to be uniform. We don't have to see everything the same way, but we need to be united. I think of the nation of Israel. The tribes were allowed to live and develop uh, their customs and preferences, but Lord, when it came to worship and warfare, they were to stand together. So help your church, Lord, to be united, our church, and then collectively other churches. Help us to be united in worship and warfare so that we will please you in all things. We ask you to help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, where in the world did our fullness logo disappear to? If you were here last week, you know we finished that series, and thank you for being a part of those 30 messages that we were able to focus on the idea of fullness. We discovered everything from key concepts to key words, and um, we are, we're going to finish up the year um, with a couple of things. Number one, I just want to give you some messages on my heart. I want to give you some encouragement. There are a couple of messages that are messages that I preach every year. Uh, I think they're that important. And sometime during the year, I just cover them again. So if you've been here long, don't think pastor's gotten lazy and is preaching old messages. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not lazy and I'm preaching pure gold. It's uh, stuff that we need to be reminded of 
from year to year. That's the way we're going to end the year. Somebody's already started asking somebody. Some people have already started asking, Pastor, what's our theme for next year? I have felt for weeks what I feel God is speaking into my heart, and I've been afraid to tell anybody. I mean, I've literally been afraid to tell anybody because it doesn't sound very encouraging. It doesn't sound very exciting, but it's what God is putting on my heart. I'm, I'm going to give it one more week of prayer before I say this is our theme, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you what I think it's going to be just so you can get used to it in case I'm right. If I'm wrong, you can just say he had a bad week. But um, uh, the, I think the theme the Lord's given me for next year is essentially this. We'll try to word it a little bit better, but here it is. Hang on, we're going to get through this. Now, I don't know if that encourages you or discourages you. The good side of it is we got something to hold on to, and we're going to get through it. But it requires some hanging on. God's going to help us. Do you know, as I pray for you, and I pray for you every day, there's not a day that goes by that I don't pray for you. Um, I know that some of you have had incredible difficulties. I know that there are some of you, your, your families have just seemed to be under attack. Your businesses under attack. And there's just a, it's just been a tough year. And um, I, I just want you to know that the enemy, we've said this, his goal is to wear us out. It's to wear us out, to, to have us cave into fatigue. That's why the, the writer of Scripture said, keep doing good, because if you keep doing good, you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. And it, it wasn't a, you better not give up. It was a, look, I know everything in you at times wants you to give up. But the writer of Scripture says, just hang in there. You're going to come out on top <laughs> if you can just not give up. Now, today I want to talk to you about when God asks a difficult thing. You say, oh, great, Pastor. I was just recovering, and now you're telling me God's going to ask a difficult thing. Well, that's not how I'm trying to present it, but the fact of the matter is, if you've walked with God long, you've been asked some difficult things. Now, we love to preach sermons. We love Whenever when God asks a difficult thing, we, um, we, we think of Abraham, who was told to sacrifice his son. Now, I want to tell you, that's a difficult thing because that's unlike the nature of God. God has never required us to be involved in human sacrifice. Uh, in fact, that's what drove the nations out of the promised land and made the way for Israel. That's what sent Israel into bondage, their sacrifice of children. God, that doesn't even sound like God. And we would probably need a two or three part series to really plumb the depths of what God was doing when he asked Abraham to do that. And there are some superficial answers, and they have some truth, and there are some profound answers that would take a little bit of time. But we don't have time to do uh, that now, and I don't know that we'd have a good response on a sermon series on sacrificing children. So we don't, we don't want to go that route. But I do know this. Whenever you get to the heart of the matter, there was profound wisdom and profound mercy and profound purpose in that request that God put before Abraham. And it, it, because we know that's counterintuitive. That's not like God. 
It doesn't make any sense. And that kind of plays into where we want to go today because there are sometimes, when I say God asks a difficult thing, sometimes it's difficult because of what it requires. Sometimes it's difficult because it's not understandable. We don't know how this thing is going to work out or how it's going to play out. We think of Abraham with Isaac and we say, oh, when God asks a hard thing, everything works out great. He didn't have to sacrifice his son. And we know from the New Testament that Abraham had a revelation in that three-day journey. And God showed him, I've made you this promise. And you know I can't take Isaac out of the picture uh, because he has a destiny. And he figured out, I mean, this is brilliant. He really is. He figured out that if he killed his own son, that that meant it had to mean God would raise him from the dead because he's already made these promises, has to keep it. And we'd say, when God asks you to do something difficult, just hang in there. God's just a little bit of a trickster, and he's going to show you something right around the corner to make everything turn out right. And sometimes it does. But then there are other times God asks you difficult things where God says, this is what I require. It's not right. It's not just. It involves a heavy uh, oppression of a victim. But God says, this is what we're going to do. And Jesus says, Father... I understand, but if there is any way you can navigate these waters without the cross, this is Jesus. This isn't me trying to get out of something unpleasant. This isn't us trying to just find the path of least resistance. The very Son of God who came in the flesh, God in the flesh, fully God and fully man, he looks at what God requires and says, if, I'm, I, I pay attention when Jesus says, if, if there is any other way, nevertheless, not my will, but what your will is, let that be accomplished. Loved ones, there are sometimes God asks you to do a difficult thing and you do it and it works out beautifully. There are other times, you know, it's like the man that fell, you know, off a cliff and he grabbed onto a limb sticking out of the side of the cliff. He looks over his shoulder and it's 3,000 feet down there and he calls out for help. Nobody answers. And then somebody says, I'm here to help you. And he says, who are you? He says, I'm God. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Get me out of this mess. I can't hold on much longer. What should I do, God? God says, let go. The man thinks about it a minute and says, is there anybody else up there? <laughs> and we smile and say, I know what it was. He let go and he didn't know there was, a, there was a ledge just two feet below him. And he landed on the ledge and he was fine. But sometimes we don't have ledges. And sometimes God takes you through what was, this is not profanity, this is a description. God takes you through hell on earth as he did Jesus on the cross. 
And we could spend all of our time talking about making the right decision. Because you know what? I look at this congregation. I see some of you out there, you in your pajamas, you eating a waffle. I see, I see our beautiful congregation spread all over the place, some in different countries, many in different states. And I'm looking at a congregation that I know has passed the test so many times. You've said yes when God asked for a difficult thing to be done. And sometimes God vindicated himself before you. Others of you are waiting till you see Jesus to have vindication for what he asked you to do. I understand that. But that's not what I want to talk about because I know that most of the time we get it right. Most of the time we say, not my will, but your will be done. Most of the time we say, Lord, I'm going to obey you no matter what it costs. And I salute you for that. I praise God for your faithfulness and for your integrity of life. I'm, I'm so pleased. But what about those times when God asks a difficult thing and we just have trouble navigating? We might say no. Or we might put the decision off thinking that God will forget about it. Or maybe you're in the middle of something right now. You know that God is asking you to do this. Because I know, I know economically this is a crazy time. I know that socially in society it's a crazy time. I know, I, I don't know of a time that I've been pastor of this church that I can remember where we've had as many people as we have right now that are just going through tough times. And some of you right now are saying, Lord, I don't know, I've prayed, and this is what I feel like you're asking me to do. You say, Pastor, you said you have trouble with what you think is the Lord's theme for next year. My, my whole life I have trouble with right now. I'm struggling with, I feel like God is saying to hold on or let go to do this or do that. And pastor, I don't know what to do. I'm struggling and I'm having trouble trusting. So with that in mind, I, I want to focus. I don't want to be negative. I want to say thank you for obeying God. And I want to tell you, you'll always be pleased that you obeyed the Lord. But I want to go to those lesser times that we fumble the ball. There's a little sound effect. The lesser times that we fumble the ball. What about the times that I know this is what God wants, but I just can't do it? Why do I struggle with it? Why am I in that difficulty? Why do I doubt in the dark what God showed me in the light? Let me show you a typical way that this works. Now, we're not going to talk about Abraham's test. We're not even going to talk about our Lord's trial in Gethsemane. We're going to talk about the way that this doubt operates. It's not Christmas yet, but this will be our first Christmas text. Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and said, Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now verse 3 is where we're going to pivot. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed 
Now we understand why he was disturbed. He was a snake in the grass. He was an evil man. He was Herod the Great, but this is, this is not a joke. This is what people called him behind his back. Herod the Great, all hail Herod the Great. But what they called him behind his back was Herod the Great Pervert. That was his name among the crowds. He was such a wicked man. He killed his own children. He killed his wives. He, he was uh, such a murderous man that Caesar said it's better or safer. He said it's safer to be um, his sow than his son. And the, the two Greek words sound alike. They sound just alike. He was saying, you're safer if you're a pig belonging to Herod than a son. Now he did have a tender spot. I've told you about this. Mary Omni was his favorite wife. He did kill her. But I have, to, I have to be honest with you. At least he had her pickled and preserved because of his deep love for her. Yeah, Herod the great pervert, a king of righteousness being born. I understand why it disturbed him, but I don't understand the rest of the verse. He was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now he called for the scribes and he said, where is the king of the Jews to be born? Where should we look for Messiah? The scribes knew the verse, and that was the day before we even had chapters and verses. They knew right where to go. They knew where Messiah would be born. They knew why Messiah was to be born. And we know that he, Herod, lied and said, go find the child. When you find him, call me that I may go and worship him as well. If he really wanted to worship the Messiah, he would have headed out with those wise men. We know what he was after. And the result would be the slaughter of the innocents prophesied by Jeremiah. Now, um, they gave to Jesus and his parents, the wise men did, gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. It was, a, it, it was a little while because by the time they get to them, they're in a house. And we don't know if it was like weeks later. The journey wasn't that far. It was only about six or eight miles, depending on where they were. But it could be that she had to give birth in the stable and then was moved into a house. We just don't know. But God spoke to those wise men and told them to go home a different direction for their safety because Herod was a great pervert. Now, what a strange response that all Jerusalem was disturbed. We understand, as I said, the hesitancy of Herod the Great but why all Jerusalem? This was the birth of their Savior. I was reading in the Psalms, I was praying for the election, and I was praying in, in one of the Psalms, it said, Lord, there are many that are saying, who will show us prosperity? And I thought, boy, that's what the election's about. People are saying, Lord, who can show us prosperity? And the psalmist reminded folks to lean into the Lord, not into the arms of man. Well, this was the one that was going to show Jerusalem prosperity. This was the one that was going to set everything right. And when Messiah comes, the Old Testament prophet said he has two main objectives, to establish justice and to establish righteousness. Now, you can't have real justice without real righteousness. 
you know, a lot of politicians want to, they're big on justice, but they're not big on righteousness. And a lot of Christians are big on righteousness, but they're not big on justice. And we're at a, we're at a, 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 you know, a bottleneck. And here is the one that's going to bring righteousness and justice. And you would think the inhabitants of Jerusalem ought to be going crazy with, he's here. He's coming. The star is announcing his arrival. The Roman soldiers that looked over their shoulders and taxed them for everything and was bringing the prosperity of Israel to a halt. Now the solution is there. But they were troubled. Why was that, Pastor? Why didn't they take their cue from the angels in Luke 2? You've got those verses in your outline. We won't read them tonight. But an angel said, unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the King. And then heavenly hosts joined them. And they began to declare glory to God in the highest. And on earth and peace, goodwill toward men upon whom his favor rests. Boy, you would have thought they would have at least started singing that song. You would have thought they would have started singing the lion and the lamb. You would have thought they started celebrating. It's been rough, but victory is here. It's been unjust, but the just judge is here. It's been a difficult road, but the one who makes us righteous is arriving the shepherds understood that, but Jerusalem didn't, and they should have been the first to understand it. You say, why was that, pastor? They should have been excited. The desire of the ages was arriving. This was the moment generations had been waiting for, but instead of joy, the announcement troubled them profoundly. Now, here's what I want to present to you about our workings as well. Often, God will present his workings to us in a way that is unfamiliar to us. Anybody say amen to that? You don't need to point to anybody necessarily, but sometimes God presents his workings to us, and because it's not in the right package, not the right label, not the right circumstances we don't know what to do with it now sometimes we tend to doubt like Zechariah did they've been praying for years for the their generation for a son and now they're old they're well past the age of bearing children and it was it just blew their mind they couldn't comprehend it Mary on the other hand now you've got to stop and think she's told that she's going to have a child, but she's a virgin. She's told that this child is going to save the world. They're told, she and Joseph, that his name would be called Jesus because Jesus, Joshua, means Savior. He will save the people from their sins. All of this comes to the heart, and I've told you, Mary was probably a 15-year-old girl. And she has the spiritual capacity being raised in a synagogue known for its unbelief, she has the capacity to understand there are some things I can't understand. There are some things I have to say to the angel, how is this going to happen? 
She didn't say like Zechariah, how can this be? She said, how is this going to happen? How shall this be? And the Bible says something beautiful about Mary. It says that instead of casting aside or rejecting what she could not understand, it says she kept them. That's a word for gathering them, cherishing them, and pondering them in her heart, waiting for a moment of accurate perception. Loved ones, I don't mean to talk down to you like I know something you don't know. You, you may know this better than I do. But we need to learn to take the mysteries of God's ways and hold them close. Never reject them because you don't understand them. Hold them close until God in His wisdom or you in your maturity begin to understand. You know, that old saying about when I was a teenager, my dad was an idiot. When I was in my 20s, he started getting a little bit smarter. By the time I had my own children, he was a genius. Well, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but it's almost that way with God. God will present things to us in a way that we don't understand. And the toughest thing for us is to hold to them and not reject them. That's what was going on in Jerusalem. Now, the scribes, let me tell you the, how, how difficult it was. The scribes in Jerusalem knew the verses, but they were still disturbed. You can come to church and have a Sunday school certificate saying you've completed all the memory verses. But that doesn't mean you have understanding of the ways of God. Now, I think you ought to learn those Sunday school verses. I think you ought to come to church. I think you ought to learn everything you can. I think you ought to be in the scripture every day. But it's not enough. We have churches all over America that show people that are, their hearts are full of the word and full of bitterness and hatred. And it's not just what we know. It's what we know and how it is working in us. The scribes knew the verses, but they didn't know the beautiful power that God was bringing to bear. So the question is, I'll repeat, it's there in your notes, why do we doubt in the dark? And let me, let me just say this. Um, sometimes, especially those of us that believe in the power of prayer and that are seekers of the Lord, like a, that's a tradition in our church, and we, we believe that some things happen when you pray that don't happen if you don't pray. And so we put a lot of emphasis in prayer. And I remember the first prayer retreat I ever went on. I was a freshman in Bible college. And one of our professors told about the, the array of godly men that had their success because once a month or once whenever they could, they would have a prayer retreat. And following the example of Jesus, they would go into the mountains to be alone to pray. And um, I, I remember... I remember very well my first prayer retreat I've ever been on and God did so much for me in that retreat that it's been a lifelong habit since then. And, and with the help of the Lord, every, every month or so, I still get away for two or three days to just focus on seeking the Lord. Well, the problem with those moments, whether you're Moses in the mountain or, or Justin at Morningstar, the problem's the same. You go into the holy place and God shows you amazing things. 
I want you to build this tabernacle. I want you to build a foundation that in today's money worth $15 million. I want you to use these hides. I'm, I want you to build a holy box. I want you to put these fragrances together. God shows you all of these amazing things in the place of prayer. But what happens is you start coming down the mountain and you're like Jesus. You come from the Mount of Transfiguration and when he got down to the mountain, his disciples are arguing with each other. They're arguing with people that want prayer. Jesus says, somebody comes up to him and says, I brought my son to your disciples to cure him. I know you gave them your, your uh, mark of approval, but they couldn't do nothing. Just nothing. See, and there's a lot of stuff that happens from the mountaintop to the valley. And I want to tell you, it's not easy to get what God showed you in the mountaintop into a place of reality in the valley. And whenever God gives you a promise about that wayward child, you guys still with me? Whenever God gives you a word about your business, whenever God gives you a word about whatever promise he has given you, the enemy wants to put you in a position where you begin to doubt what God has said. And I want to tell you, the greatest spiritual leaders in America, the greatest pastors in America are those that listen in the mountain and find a way to hold on to that direction when they get back in the valley. Okay, so that's an important thing. Forgive that little rabbit trail, but that was a rabbit that needed to be chased down. Why do we struggle? Okay, pastor, I don't want, pastor, I have victory, but I don't have victory all the time. Why am I struggling? I want to point out why we struggle, but I also want to give you encouragement because I want to say this. I don't, don't misunderstand me. We, we are against sin. <laughs> we are against failing the Lord. We don't want to do that. But I also think from our perspective, we Pentecostals are sometimes so hard on ourselves when we don't do it as well as we want to. We beat ourselves up and others beat us up. And, and we know what we want to achieve. But when we struggle, we don't show ourselves a lot of grace or mercy. I mean, to, to ourselves. And I want to tell you, it's okay to have the struggle. We need to know why we have the struggle. We need to know the way out. Here's the first reason. Here's the first reason. Sometimes, I think this is rare for a, a person that's pursuing the Lord, but sometimes we just get in a position where we doubt his power. We just doubt his power. We know the verses like the scribes did in Jerusalem. We know his history. But for some reason, something just turns off in our brain or our heart. I have trouble deciding what's in my head and what's in my heart sometimes. And we just find ourselves doubting his power. You say, well, pastor, I, I, I don't know how I could possibly doubt his power. Yet we do. I mean, I, I'm not... I'm not fussing. We just, we find ourselves in unbelievable places. You know, I've had, I've been in places where God pours out just like a bowl full of anointing on me. And, and then in a matter of hours, I find myself struggling like I did before. And I, I had to learn that I've got to quit using a colander for a bowl. You know, um, I need a better bowl. And if there are leaks in my life, I need to plug it. But uh, um, Psalm 78 
gives a picture of this. These were people, Psalm 78, if, if, you're in, if you're in any danger of prideful arrogance, read Psalm 78. They spoke against God, and this is what they said. God said, why are you in the mess you're in? Because you spoke against me. What did you say? Can God really spread a table in the wilderness? Now listen. True. He struck the rock and water gushed out. Streams flowed abundantly. That's true. But can he also give us bread? Water's easier than bread. What universe do we get that from? But can he also give us bread? Can he supply meat for his people? See, they were doubting his power. They said, well, maybe he could give us water. I mean, you know, there, there were old shepherd's tricks of bringing water out of rock. Water would go get into a shale uh, under a shale rock and you could break the rock and water would come out. But that would be enough to, to water, uh, to give water for two or three people or at best a small herd. You didn't, you didn't water six and a half million people by breaking the shale rock in a little hillside. No, 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 no. They said, he, okay, he can give us water, but can he give us chicken and waffles? You say, oh, pastor, I've been there. I know, I know up here that he has the power, but I can't believe it here. Or maybe I know it here and can't believe it here. I don't even know where the problem is. Loved ones, sometimes, I'm telling you, it's just sometimes unexplicable, unexplicably and beyond reason, we forget what we know and we just think he doesn't have power. A lot of times it's based on false assumption. See, I grew up in a culture that said, well, if God does it for one, he's got to do it for the other. Because, you know, after all, he's no respecter of persons. So I grew up in a culture, if God did something for Justin, he has to do it for me because he's no respecter of persons. That's not what that verse means at all. Um, God, when he says he's no respecter of persons, that does not mean what he did for one, he'll do for another. No, he doesn't do for one what he does for another unless it's the thing that's needed. When it says he's no respecter of persons, it means this. Justin may be high born and lofty. I, I may be a thug off the streets, but God will not treat Justin better than he treats me in regard to righteousness. He, our personages, our accomplishments, our relative morality, God doesn't care at all whether you're here or here. It's like I've said before, it's like trying to jump from earth to the moon. Whether you're jumping from the lowest point on earth, the Dead Sea, or you're jumping from the top of Mount Everest, you still ain't getting to the moon. You may have a better starting point, but you're still hopeless. And when God says that he's no respecter of persons, that's good news and it's bad news. It's bad news meaning no matter how good you are, that's not anything to get you to heaven. But it's also good news because it says no matter how bad you are, that can't keep you from being brought into the presence of God. He treats us all alike and it's all by the blood of Jesus. 
And, and God may do something for Justin because that's what Justin needs, but he won't do it for me even though it's something I want. I remember just before I had heart surgery, there was somebody in church that had a problem similar to mine. No, they're not here anymore. And don't try to look around and figure out who it was. I'd never say it if it was somebody still in the church or even remotely connected to the church. We came here on a Wednesday night and I asked the church to pray. And you prayed fervently. You prayed for the healing power of God to come and correct this heart condition. And God messed around and healed a sinner and didn't heal me. Now I had to take that in. I said, Lord, if you'll do it for him, you'll do it for me. And I had to come to the realization. I knew it already. God doesn't owe any of us anything. He will be merciful to whom he will be merciful. He will be whatever to whomever he will be whatever. God owes me nothing. So I, 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 when, when it doesn't happen, it makes you wonder, does he not have the power? But loved ones, please understand, I don't think most Christians live there. I don't think most Christians spend more than a few hours in the place where they say God doesn't have the power. You know better than that. But you are in a cosmic battle between flesh and spirit. And I want to tell you what every one of you are prone to, just as I am, you are prone to a syndrome. It's a spiritual syndrome. It's called the Simon Peter at Caesarea Philippi syndrome. If you've ever been to Simon, I mean to uh, Caesarea Philippi, you know at least part of it, it's, it's one of the most demonic places in the Holy Land. It's, it's, a, it's a place dedicated to pagan deities and pagan powers. Nothing about Jehovah is there. And we believe it was at that very place, at that very cave and the attending uh, altars where Jesus said, who do you believe that I am? And some said Elijah, some said John the Baptist. And Peter had a revelation from God. Jesus said, you didn't get this in your own mind. This is straight from heaven. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Simon, you are blessed and you got it right. You heard from heaven. Yeah. Thanks, JC. I appreciate that. <laughs> appreciate that acknowledgement. John, would you please uh, understand he gave me the kingdoms because of my revelation. And then it's just minutes later, maybe seconds, Peter opens his mouth the second time. And Jesus looks at him and says, you heard from Satan. You heard from God. You heard from Satan. Guys, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to have a, a, a time in the presence of the Lord where I feel like heaven gave me tips. I mean, it's more valuable than a stock market tip. He spoke to me of things about the kingdom and prophetic events that are coming. And man, I feel like, oh! And before the end of the day, I say something so stupid. I hurt somebody so profoundly and deeply and I want to tell you, not only do I go from there to there, 
but I am so disappointed in myself. I'm my own worst enemy. I call myself names I wouldn't let anybody else call me. I am so mean to myself. I am so hard on myself. I, I say there's just, there's no hope for me. And I, I want to tell you something. You've got to be careful. I, I, I have to fight this. When I don't live up to what I know I ought to live up to, I go into this deep despair and I am rougher on me than, than the devil is sometimes. But you've got, you can't do that. You've got to understand if it happened to Simon Peter, it's going to happen to us. That's not an excuse. That's an explanation. Not an excuse. It's an explanation. So we've got to understand that sometimes we don't follow through because we doubt his power. But loved ones, the enemy wants to make you either doubt his power or make you feel so bad about doubting his power that you can't get back on track. Here's the second thing. Sometimes we don't doubt his power. We just doubt his intentions. Oh, I know God's got the power. I know he's got the power. God can do anything. And we think that acknowledgement puts us in a better standing. It actually puts us on more shaky ground. Because if, I, if, if, my, if my son was in danger, I would do everything I could to get him out of danger. Now, I might not have the power to get him out of danger. But if my son looks at me and says, my daddy tried, but he couldn't, our relationship's okay. He knows that I, I might have given my life to help him. I just lack the power. But that's a world of difference between my daddy could have helped me if he wanted to, and he didn't. Do you understand what I'm saying? So when we doubt God's power, that's less destructive than doubting his intentions. That's what was behind that passage of scripture where they knew Jesus could stop storms. They knew Jesus could, could solve problems. They knew Jesus could turn water into wine. But when they were in a storm that they, and they were experienced sailors, some of them, they couldn't get out of it. They woke up Jesus with this. See, they didn't say, Jesus, we know you're tired, but we're in a storm. We need help. They didn't say, Jesus, I hate to bother you. I know you're exhausted. We were trying to handle this, but it's beyond our means. This is how they woke him up. Jesus, don't you even care that we're perishing? I, I, I really am convinced. That, you know, King James makes it sound rather poetic. Carest thou not that we perish? But at the heart of it, and, and that's good, that's, that's what it was. But at the heart of it, they were saying, you don't even care that we're about to go under. Nothing was further from the truth. You see, when we don't understand the Lord's intentions, we can ascribe things to him that are far more nefarious than he lacks power. You lack care. You lack love. You lack compassion. I love you more than you love me, apparently. Charles Spurgeon championed the notion, and you, you can find this quote attributed to him with, with variations. That's probably because he said it more than once. Um, but Charles Spurgeon is said to have said this, and we know that Spurgeon struggled with depression, and it was significant 
It wasn't just a bad day. It wasn't, he, he had periods of depression. Um, and I'm not a doctor to say if he was clinically depressed or whatever, but he was under a booger of depression. And this is what he said. He said there, he, he acknowledged there are times that God doesn't seem to be answering my prayer. He acknowledged that there are times that he could not understand what God was doing. But this is what he said. God is too wise to be mistaken and too kind to be cruel. So when I cannot trace his hand, I will trust his heart. Now, what it was a beautiful little old English play on words there, not old English, but 19th century English. He says, if I don't think God is doing the right thing, I have to remember he's too wise to be mistaken. If I don't think God is being just or he's playing games, he's too kind to be cruel. So he is not cruel and he is not mistaken. Yet there are still times I can't see what his hand is doing. Tracing his hand. He was saying, sometimes I can look at God and I can see he started here, then he did this, then he did this, then he did this, and he ends up over here. He said, but when I cannot trace his, trace his hand, that's when I must trust his heart. And loved ones, we need to understand that if you're going to get through these difficult times when God asks you to do difficult things and you can't figure out what's going on, you've got to get past the offense of the mind. You've got to stop thinking that God owes you explanation for his ways and means. And you've got to understand, I can trust his heart because the greatest pain, the greatest pain my children could 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 put on me, and, they, and, they, and I've got good children, they, they didn't do this, but the greatest pain they could put on me is to accuse me of not caring. D Daddy, I know you said this, but are you really going to do it? No, I, I, I think the greatest love that my children can show me is I can trust my daddy. The greatest pain is... I don't know if daddy's going to come through or not. And that can happen when we doubt intentions. Jeremiah, that verse we do have on our refrigerator, you know, I know the plans I have for you. We love that verse, but that was a response to a horrible accusation from Jerusalem. They said, you promised you'd bless us, but you're sending us off into exile. You're not keeping your word to us. And God responds with, I know the plans I have for you. Don't tell me I'm not keeping my word. Don't tell me I'm not working all things for your good. I'm everything I'm doing. You don't like it, but I'm doing it in order to bless you and give you a hope and a future. I tell you, loved ones, we don't want to fall into the trap of doubting his power. That's silly. But neither do we want to fall into the trap of doubting his intentions. Let's go to the third one because some of you are getting hungry. Sometimes, now this is the tough one. If I don't think he's got the power, I'm going to get over that in a couple of days. I probably, I may say something stupid. I, I remember one time my, my beautiful wife said to me, and she, I thank you, thank her that she doesn't talk to me like this anymore. But we were early in ministry and I said something that was so stupid. And it was truly stupid. And I wanted her 
to pity me. I, you ladies need to understand, it's not, a, it's not rocket science. When we whine, we need pity. You know, it's, I don't know why you have such trouble grasping that. Well, I wanted, I wanted pity and she got the keys. I said, where are you going? She said, I'm going to the grocery store. I said, I'm having a crisis. She said, I'm going to go to the grocery store and give you time to let the Lord speak to you. She said, no, nobody. I, she said, I don't know that I've known anybody that has the ability to hear the Lord like you do. And I thought, well, that's not pity, but I'll take it. She said, therefore, I'm going to go get our groceries. And by the time I get back, I'm going to trust that God has spoken to you about the stupidity of what you just said. And to Ramona, I say, thank you. That was back in the 80s. Thank you for not doing it again since then. Sometimes we just, we, we ascribe the wrong thing to God. And, and we're, we're in an age right now, there's a lot of that going on. We, we call people by names. It's not true, but we ascribe an insult to them. We think we can understand their intentions, and we don't. We don't. A lot of damage done. In fact, I think, I think our society is going to be years. I think our churches are going to be years getting over this epidemic of the ascribing of intentions that we've seen over the last three years or so. But you're going to get over the God doesn't have power. And God will bring you to a point, just like he did Jonah. He, he, Jonah was angry with God because he didn't understand his intentions. And God just sat on a hillside with him and worked him through the garbage in his mind. God will get you through it when you don't understand God's intentions. But this third one, this is the one, loved ones, that we need to be so careful about. This is the one that can be, that can be so deadly. Sometimes we find obedience too costly and understanding is too strange for our minds to grasp. Now, God all the time reveals things in us that aren't right that we might not have even known was there. But sometimes God sees something that has a grip on you. Maybe you see it, maybe you don't. But it's so powerful, God calls out the big guns because he realizes you need surgery to get this out of your life. This isn't just a momentary lapse. This isn't just pitying yourself and saying something that's not true about God. This is where you see something in your life that ought not to be there. And instead of letting God deal with it as he wants, you wrap your arms around it tight. It may be a sinful thing. It may be just a fleshly thing. And flesh, fleshly things are not always sinful things. Sometimes fleshly things are just not spiritual things. Abraham's a great example of this. God had promised him that he was going to have a son, and through that son, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And, you know, God promised it to him decades earlier when having a son, it was still pretty late in the game, but it was at least thinkable. Now he is uh, right at 100. His wife is right at 90. And God says, it's time for me to perform what I promised. 
And Abraham does something that is so strange, but it gives me hope because if he's the father of the faithful, it means if it happens in me, I'm not cast off. He wanted a son. He knew, see, he got past God doesn't have power. And he got past God, I don't know his intentions, and he, he, made, a, he made a bad mistake, which is another sermon. Um, we need to help God. And Sarah says, well, here, take my slave. She belongs to me. If she has a child by you, then it's my child because she's my slave. That's horrible. That's a horrible societal model. But that was the way it worked. So Abraham, and I, I do not recommend this. This is not good. Nothing but trouble was the result. Abraham had sex with his wife's slave, and they, they, they were honestly saying, we're going to help God. We're going to help God. We're going to get a son this way. I've often wondered what would have happened if Ishmael turned out to be Ishmaelini and was a girl, you know. But they had a little boy. And Abraham, you got to hear me now, Abraham was perfectly satisfied to let God do what he wanted to do through Ishmael. God said, no, I said you and Sarah. And God says, don't give me the fine points of the law. You know what I'm talking about. You and Sarah. And you know what Abraham's response was? Yes, Lord. I, I don't know what I was thinking. Um, I, I'm sorry. It was just a bad day. It was just a bad day. And we have Ishmael, but Ishmael's no big deal. Okay, yes, we'll try it again. No, in desperation, he calls out to God. This is what he says. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. See, God was saying, Abraham, another decade has passed. Another decade has passed. And you're no closer to having a son with Sarah than you were then. But I'm here to tell you, I'm going to breathe hope into this dream again. And Abraham backs up and he doesn't press into the promise. He says, I have Ishmael and Ishmael is enough. Wow. Loved ones, do you know what it's like in your life to have compromised somewhere along the way and you got some form of blessing and you've been willing to say that's enough? That's enough when we're not pressing through. Now, I don't say this lightly because no man has a son and says that son is disposable. I mean, whether, whether, you know, if a man has a father's heart, it doesn't matter if it's an adopted child, a stepchild, or his own natural child. He's going to love that child with all of his heart. There's no difference in those children. Not if the man has a father's heart. And so God says, you have to, and God used Sarah. She said, cast out the bondwoman and her son, and God was behind it. Oh, God's behind things I don't understand. He really is. He's behind things I don't understand. But it's not because I'm better than God. It's because I don't know him well enough yet. Oh, let's hurry. He says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And he says, cast him out. Now, this has nothing to do with Abraham's love for Isaac or, or 
um, Ishmael or his lack of love for Ishmael. He loved him. He was willing to say, Lord, I'll live with second best the rest of my life. That's how much he loved that boy. I'll live with second best the rest of my life. God said, I'm not going to let you draw. He, in fact, God in his mercy says, I'm going to bless Ishmael too. I know how you love him. I will still bless Ishmael, but you've got to do this my way. And the amazing thing I do not understand as a Western 21st century American he sent, here's a man who was stinking rich, could have sent him out with a fortune and never missed it, but he sends him out with a skin of water. It doesn't sound fair. It doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound like God. But the law of the land, not the law of God, the law of the land said that if you had a wife and you, have, you produce a, a son by her concubine, that concubine had to be an equal heir with your son unless you repudiate him and send him away. And you send him away with nothing because if you send him away with anything, it's considered a downposit on his riches that he comes back and gets later. You say, well, that just doesn't even sound like God. I know. I could take 20 minutes and try, but I'm hungry. I know it doesn't sound like God, but do you know that God was about to send in, in a few hundred years, he was going to send Israel in to drive out of the promised land, all of those ites. He was going to tell them to conquer men, women, and children and drive them away. That doesn't sound fair. That doesn't sound like God. But I want to tell you, first of all, this is just an entryway to explanation. God made Israel stay in bondage for 400 years while he gave the Amorites every chance they needed to turn. God gave every one of those nations a chance to turn. God wasn't just saying, I don't like you, you're out. Israel, come on in. God dealt with these nations. No offense. God dealt with these nations the same way that he would do. He, he ran them out of the land for their sin, for their sacrifice of children. When Israel was run out of the land, it was for their sin, it was for their sacrifice of children. No, I, I'm here to tell you that God will work in ways. When you read the Old Testament and you see what God required him to do for Ishmael and you see what Israel had to do, it's easy to say, I, I, that's just not fair. But loved ones, I'm telling you, the problem is not that God isn't fair. The problem is that we want God to understand our Western mindset. And we dare make the assumption that we are in a position to say what's right and what's fair and that God is in error. No. You say, well, I, God's not telling me to kill anybody, so I guess it doesn't apply to me. No, but what about you rich young rulers when God says give up everything you've got and give it to the poor and come follow me and you say, why didn't you have... Sister Papoofnik, give up everything and sell it and follow me. See, you are serving a God that is so much above you that he will tell Glenn to give up everything that he says Tim can keep. Now, is Tim better? No, Tim's just Tim. Glenn is Glenn. 
And if you are wanting to find a God that treats everybody equally, it's not our God, but he treats everyone well. He treats everyone the right way. Oh, the moment when Jesus forgave Peter and restored him and said, Peter, you're going, you, you've always been your own man. You've always been in charge, but I want you to know I'm restoring you to feed my lambs, take care of my sheep. But understand this, when you're old, somebody's going to take you, you're going to die a martyr's death for me. But everything that happens to you is going to be to the glory of God. You're going to die a martyr. And what does Peter do? What about him? Pointing to John. And you know what Jesus said? He said, that has nothing to do with you. What if I want him to live till I return? And John lived so long, people began to think that the Lord said he will live till I return. But Jesus wasn't saying, I like John better than I like you. He was saying, Peter, you have to follow me. And the way I deal with anybody else doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. This is about me. This is about you. We have to get past the offense of the mind. There are some Christian life lessons that are pretty self-explanatory, but let me take 60 seconds to go over them, and then I want to end. Our minds think God is taking away things when he's really showing us the whole picture of a better future. See, a lot of times, because we don't understand, we miscalculate. Um, the King James says, I've not come to do away with the law. I've come to fulfill the law. And fulfill carries with it the idea of checking off boxes. He did this, he did this, he did this. But I like the CEV translation. Don't suppose I came to do away with the law and the prophets. I did not come to do away with them, but to give them their full meaning. See, he says, I'm going to fulfill all of the Old Testament prophets, not so that I can show you my batting average. I'm going to do this so that you will understand fully what those feasts meant, what those offerings meant, what those stories meant. Number two, the ultimate question is whether I trust God when he asks something difficult. You see, loved ones, that's what it's going to come down to if it's the end of the first day or the end of the first month. Wherever, someplace you're going to come to the place where you have to say, Lord, I trust you. You can't escape it. And I want to ask you this third question. I just want it in the back of your mind. What would it take to make you leave the presence of Jesus? John 6, 66. That John chapter 6 is one of the most oh, heavy chapters in the Gospels. John 6. This is what the disciples said to Jesus. The way you are talking is unpleasant. Can you imagine going to a church where everybody said, oh, pastor, he's, that's a downer. He's it's just unpleasant. That's what was happening to Jesus. Everybody said, look, you, we're used to your beam in the eye jokes. We're used to your stories about the farmer that goes and scatters seeds. You're telling us we have to follow you and pay the ultimate price. That is unpleasant. And at that point, many stopped following him. And then that verse, Jesus asked the disciples, will you leave me also? 
First time I read that as a, as a child, you know, I thought Jesus was saying, oh, everybody's leaving me. Are you going to leave me too? It's not right. I stayed with y'all in the storm. You need to stay with me. Jesus was not whining. He was not whining. He was realizing, hear me, loved ones, everybody sooner or later comes to the point where the offense of your mind is so strong that you have to answer the question, are you going to leave over this? Or are you going to press in? I think that's where our society is coming right now. I think we're weeks away from it. I think we are in an age where we are so angry. I don't mean we, us, but society is so angry with the way God is working or not working that we're going to have to ask, answer the question one day, are we going to leave because this is unpleasant? Are we going to stay with it? You say, Pastor, give me something good. Jesus died for your sins and you don't have to go to hell. But that has nothing to do with the sermon. But it's good. What does it take for you to walk away? You say, well, that's, that would never be in my heart. Well, when Jesus begins to speak things, you realize that your heart has capacity for a lot of things. Whenever Jesus said, one of you will betray me, the disciples didn't say, oh, Lord, not me. No, no. Lord, you, Lord, put your glasses on. You're talking to your disciples. This is not the Pharisees here. Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And the convicting power of his words was so strong that the best of them, all of them, began to look and began to think. They looked at each other. And then in a moment of transparency, they looked at Jesus and said, Lord, is it me? Is it me? Every one of them understood that apart from him, we are as weak as water. Every one of them understood that we have to move to a place. They remembered the events of John 6. They remembered that people who said we'll never leave walked away. And in one of the healthiest moments of the Passion Week, all of the disciples said, Lord, could this be found in me? Could this be in me? And of course, it wasn't in any of them except Judas. But loved ones, as we navigate these difficult things, we need to keep our hearts humble. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. He never lacks power. Even when you don't understand Him, don't ascribe foolishness to the Lord. Understand that He can be trusted. But understand that some of the most demanding, not always, but some of the most demanding things that God requires of you is to get that old sin and that old idol out of your life so there can be more room, more room 
for what needs to be there to flourish. Father, it's time for us to go. I suspect that online, maybe in Brown Chapel, maybe even here, there are those that realize this is the day they need to make Jesus the Lord of their life. I'm going to ask you, Lord, if anyone wants to become a Christian, all of their questions, they can be answered. But we're going to ask them to come forward to the ministry team here at Brown Chapel if they're online to call the number that's on the screen. But Father, there are others of us that we've, we're just facing a difficult thing. We know that you love us. We're not going to doubt your intentions. We know that you are just moving things to create room for the great things. We know you can do it all. Father, if there's anything that we might, I know this is a, this is a long shot. It doesn't apply to everybody. It may not even apply to many. But there are some of us that are listening to me today that we're holding to stuff. And it's as important for us to get rid of it as it is for the rich young ruler to get rid of his treasure. Now again, sometimes the treasure isn't the problem. It's our disposition toward the treasure. Don't let us be deluded from doing right by thinking this isn't fair. Lord, I thank you that you are fair, you are just, and you are righteous. And Lord, may we be where Job was, where he said, even if he kills me, I trust him. We trust you, Lord. Lord, I'm, I'm amazed because I believe I have an overwhelming sense of trust coming from this congregation. They trust you. Lord, I'm not dealing with evil, wicked people. I'm dealing with people that want to go to the next level and they're stuck. They're stuck. They've got to get past the offense of the mind. They've got to get past their fears. They've got to let go of treasures that have kept them bound. 